The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to a Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. U.S. stocks rally past key levels with the Dow briefly topping 25,000 points and the S&P trading above 3,000 for the first time since early March. Banks drive the moves as J.P. Morgan boss Jamie Dimon calls the lender very valuable at this price. The ECB says ballooning public deficits will put pressure on sovereign bonds. But the central bank's vice president, Louis de Guindos, tells CNBC governments really have no choice but to act with large fiscal packages. At the end of the, of the pandemic, for sure that we will have a higher public situation. But the alternative of doing nothing is much worse. It would be much worse in terms of the crisis and it would be much worse in terms of the recovery phase. Commerce Bank turns to the markets to raise capital, issuing up to 3 billion euros worth of cocoa bonds and a bid to shore up its balance sheet. Hundreds of riot police keep protesters away from Hong Kong's Legislative Council as lawmakers vote on a controversial bill to criminalise disrespect of the Chinese national anthem. We witnessed a much firmer day on the street. Wall Street returning on the back of Memorial Day holiday, and it was a bounce across on the major averages. The levels are compelling for a lot of investors. They got above 25,000 points at one stage on the Dow, but still very solid gains of more than 500 points or 2.1% as we wrapped up shop. For the S&P 500, many also quickly eyeing that psychological barrier, the 3,000 handle. And the S&P got there during the session, was flashing up before we even started the trading day, but to the market quickly claiming 3,000, but not holding, as you can see, as we settled just shy of that key amount, the 200-day moving average that many technical watchers also improving at one point during the session, turning positive. The Nasdaq are trading firmer, but not by much, as you can see, left behind in the extent of this rally. Lots of big gainers across the board from the travel sector, in particular to the banks. We'll take a look at that in uh, just a bit. But of course, uh, we saw some of the partial reopening of the markets uh, on in the states uh, of uh, the New York Stock Exchange in particular, and resumption of new normality for some of the travel stocks really carried uh, the airline stocks forward. You could see a very strong bounce for United. 16%, some of the initial bookings are providing some encouragement for investors and Southwest Airlines 12% in the green. MGM Resorts, if you take a look at Cena, stocks up 11%. Meantime, in the car shipping, the cruise ship space, Carnival up 12%. So very strong across the board. Those US banks, uh, this is uh, the extent of the rally as well. Some comments from Jamie Dimon about the fortunes of that bank, 7% higher. And uh, you had a rally right across the board that translated to Citigroup, 9.2%, and uh, Goldman Sachs. So that was one of the big movers uh, for the likes of the Dow in session as well, having the most positive impact on Dow uh, fortunes during the session. In terms of US futures, this is how we're perched for the trading session. You can see we are chasing more gains this morning. So the trade on the recovery that we're seeing across various different countries is being welcomed by investors at this stage. 
In the backdrop, though, trade tensions, investors still closely eyeing the potential for sanctions on China because of what's playing out in Hong Kong. That's one of the elements still that's still in the backdrop for a lot of investors, uh, despite the green that splashed up on the boards yesterday. Well, meantime, the ECB has warned about the dangers of soaring public debt levels, saying the increasing deficits incurred in response to the pandemic will put renewed pressure on sovereigns. However, the central bank's vice president has told CNBC the alternative would be much worse. Annette has sat down with Luis de Guindos and asked him about the unprecedented fiscal actions governments have taken. We have a very good uh, initiative uh, uh, from uh, the, the French and the German uh, governments that has been very well received by, by markets. You, you, the reaction in terms of uh, narrowing of spreads was quite quite clear. And I hope that, uh, you know, this will be the starting point. And on top of that, uh, you know, the European Commission will have to put forward uh, its plans uh, in order to continue with the, the, the recovery of the, of the, of the euro area. So when, all in all, when you put together, you know, our monetary, monetary response and afterwards, uh, you know, the national authorities' uh, response in terms of fiscal policy plus uh, what we expect that it will be, you know, a powerful pan-European response. I think that you, you have a package that will be able to cope with the, the, the crisis that we are suffering now. Let me bring you back to the financial risk from the elevated debt levels, because you're saying that also in your report that, of course, debt levels will go very high, especially in countries which are deemed to be in a critical state already, like Italy, for example. So how much of a, is there an increased risk then that, for example, one country could crash out of the eurozone if they can't reduce debt levels ultimately? Well, I would not put it that way. I think that, uh, you know, uh, prior to the, to the corona crisis, well, uh, you know, there were countries with high uh, public debt uh, levels. But I think that uh, the important issue to take into consideration, we have to put in perspective, you know, the, 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 the political, the, polit the policy response. Uh, fiscal policy is going to be key, it's going to be crucial. And, uh, you know, in the short term, during the, the pandemics, during the, 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 the crisis that we are suffering, I think that national fiscal, fiscal policy is going to be totally needed. And, uh, well, this fiscal policy for sure is going to be, you know, one of the main pillars of the response, plus monetary policy, plus the pan-European fiscal policy. And afterwards, uh, at the end of the, of the pandemic, uh, for sure that we will have a higher public debt ratio. But the alternative of doing nothing is much worse. It would be much worse in terms of the crisis and it would be much worse in terms of the recovery phase. So uh, the only alternative is to, to, to have a fiscal response, for sure that we will have a legacy that is a higher public debt ratio. And uh, you know, these uh, this, uh, this concerns about uh, uh, public finances in the medium term will have to be addressed. But now, you know, what we have to do is to have a powerful and a strong fiscal response, both from, uh, from both uh, the national authorities and, uh, you know, the pan-European, adapted by pan-European level. With the elevated debt levels, that most likely will also mean that we get that lower for longer monetary policy stance for even lower, uh, longer for lower. Um, what's your idea behind, like... No, I think that, it... you know, fiscal, fiscal policy is not going to determine, uh, you know, the, 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 the bias of our monetary policy at all. Monetary, our monetary policy will be, will be channeled uh, towards our main objective, that is price stability. 
uh, we take into consideration other other elements, other uh, you know important economic policies and fiscal policies, an important an important policy. But I would not say that uh, at all that uh, you know fiscal policy or higher debt levels are going to uh, you know to determine uh, you know our monetary policy at all. Lewis Dikindos there telling us directly, Jeff, that debt levels will rise. And I think that's a concern for many of us. I mean, we've been talking for, for many years about the debt level for Italy. It struggled to get out of the 120 to 130% debt to GDP, find growth, pay down those debts without increasing borrowing costs. And what we've heard uh, from Fitch, that their expectations, the country's debt could rise to about 156% on the back of this. So it's, it seems just incredible that we've spent years talking about how to get out of the Eurozone crisis. Now we've gone right into the next crisis and those debt levels are just going to get worse. It doesn't seem like there are any answers except stall the extent of this downward uh, trend that we're seeing, try to resurrect some of the economic fortunes and then we'll deal with it later. We'll deal with the debt pile that we've accumulated. Yeah, they've got no choice, have they, uh, quite frankly, Karen, at this point. And there is an old saw that nothing ever happens in Europe without a crisis. Uh, it's a continent uh, that's Countries' borders were ultimately forged in successive crises. But let me take a moment just to unpack what Louis de Guinness was saying here. And I think, as always, Annette focusing in on those key pinch points. And let's just uh, take an adventure into European literature. The Three Musketeers was a terrific book that I read as a child, Alexander Dumas. Uh, and that the great line out of the Three Musketeers is all for one and one for all. And this is the communication that the ECB is trying to put across here, that we are all in this together. And the projections coming out of this forecast, debt to GDP, potentially 86% on average across all the countries and uh, making the point that we could see uh, budget deficits, uh, annual budget deficits up at about 8%. But as you've rightly pointed out, Italy is the key pressure point. And can the ECB actually hold the ring on suppressing the yields on the sovereign and preventing a blowout on spreads to German bunds? Because the reality is, of course, that the forecasts for Italy look some more like 155 to 159% debt to GDP and the likelihood that the deficit will go out somewhere to 10% at this point. I think what the market is telling you is, for the time being, it buys in and it does believe that the ECB can hold the line here. But I think, you know, isn't it interesting? Um, we've had a succession of ECB talking heads in recent days who are coming out to make similar points here. And the messaging, of course, is to try and put across to the market this idea, as in the Three Musketeers, that we are all in this together and we will hold the line for the sake of all countries at this stage. But Europe is not all in it together, and that's very evident when you talk about fiscal policy. We're going to see some details around an EU budget later on, and effectively uh, the frugal four already lining up against the rest of the likes of Austria, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Denmark, not up for uh, signing up to the agreement that the French and Germans have devised in the backdrop, this recovery fund of 500 billion euros. That's just the initial response. What about down the track? And my level of frustration when we started the conversation about dealing with the debt piles later on. I mean, how do you deal with the debt? 
you need to raise fresh revenue. How do you raise fresh revenue? Well, some of the ideas floated even before this crisis were to come up with a, a technology tax. Well, some countries don't want to agree to that because they, uh, their bread is buttered on a different side to other members of the European uh, project. They are getting more money from those big technology giants, so they don't want to do anything that's going to damage that revenue. So the self-interest is still very evident, Jeff, and I don't see how Europe, once it finds its way out of this crisis, does anything to pay down those bills and find fresh sources of revenue. Well, I think the credit analysts are probably uh, less worried about that than maybe uh, the man or woman on, uh, on, the main, on Main Street. The reality is, of course, that we've seen debt levels higher than this before uh, since the Second World War. So this is not something that is, is completely new, perhaps in peacetime, relatively new. But of course, the, the reality is the central banks, as long as the market holds the line and is confident in the integrity of the policy and in the integrity of money, the central banks actually can do uh, quite a bit more, it seems to me. And, and one thing they could do, um, I'm not saying it would be popular with everybody. And of course, we're all worried about debt levels because that's ultimately robbing growth from the future. But they could actually warehouse some of this, some of this debt. They, like the Federal Reserve at the ECB, they could continue to get involved in the market, buy assets, try to inject, inject liquidity, and then effectively warehouse the debt and hope that generally people forget about it. Um, of course, it will have to be uh, addressed or paid down at some point, but do that at a stage where hopefully economies are growing more strongly. Um, and the reality is, of course, we did pay down a lot of the Second World War debt over a period of 40 or 50 years, but that had consequences and you have to make choices. So it can be done, but of course it does mean that you are lining yourself up for lower growth rates uh, for a long time in the future. Look at Japan, where it's been for the last 30 years. Um, are we prepared for something similar, I wonder? Yeah, also, uh, you know, we've heard many conversations around inflation finally returning. Do we inflate our way out of it instead of the Japanese model that you describe? Are we in a very different situation where inflation levels start to pick up? Uh, Jeff, we'll leave it there. We've got a bit more tape uh, from the ECB as uh, the Vice President, Louis de Guindos, also addressed the banking sector in his sit-down with Aneta, saying the fallout from coronavirus has exacerbated existing issues in the financial industry. He warned lenders would see their profitability fall, but added that they are in a stronger position than a decade ago. Banks are in a much better situation than they were only 10 years ago, no? in terms of capital, in terms of liquidity, in terms of non-performing loans. So, uh, you know, they are much in a much better position. They are much more resilient than before. But, uh, you know, you had a problem prior to the crisis, to the corona crisis, that it was very low profitability. And I think that, uh, you know, this crisis is going to have a, an additional impact in terms of uh, reducing further the profitability of the European the European banks. And you have uh, a very clear reflection that is the evolution of valuations in the stock markets. Uh, you have seen a very important drop and decline in the valuations in, uh, you know, the, the, the price to book that is, uh, that are, you know, an average is in the area of 0.3. And uh, the problem is not the average, the problem is the dispersion, that there are you know, some significant banks with valuations that are, you know, 0.1 is something that we have not seen before. So uh, um, uh, this is the, perhaps, you know, for the banking sector, this is the main problem that we will have to face up to uh, profitability. And I think that uh, that makes 
you know, the necessary actions that were necessary before the crisis, even more than now. What are the necessary actions in your view? Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, cost cutting, cost reduction, uh, getting rid of excess capacity, consolidation is going to be, is going to be, is going to be key. And uh, uh, because for sure that uh, now we are in a much better situation than we were 10 years ago. But this is a big hit for the banks. And, uh, you know, in terms of profitability, so the actions that were needed before now are becoming totally necessary taking into consideration that uh, you know, profitability is going to be reduced further. Um, do you think some banks might actually be threatened, uh, like the, the loan losses might be life-threatening to some banks, which might come, because we don't know yet actually what's going to come for the banks? Well, uh, you know, but banks uh, you know, are much more resilient than before, and there is something that we cannot... Uh, we cannot uh, uh, overlook that is that uh, you know national governments they have put in place uh, um, guarantee schemes public guarantee schemes and uh, according to our calculations uh, you know these public guarantee schemes on average in, in case that uh, you know these public guarantee schemes are you know are fully absorbed by the banks and uh, you know the full take up of these uh, of these schemes could you know transfer from the book of the banks to the government 30% of the potential losses so uh, there is an additional element uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, helping the banks to, to, to address and to, to confront the difficult situation that we are going through now. German lender Commerzbank is seeking to raise up to 3 billion euros in cash as it looks to manage the fallout from the virus outbreak. This after reporting a 295 million euro loss in the first quarter. The bank will issue additional tier one capital, also known as COCO bonds. The date for the first round is set to be announced at a later stage. Chipmaking giant Infineon has raised over 1 billion euros through a capital increase. The German group hopes the share issue will help fund its $10 billion deal to buy U.S. rival Cypress Semiconductor. Shares were priced at €19.30 each. Coming up on the show, riot police keep control of Hong Kong amid calls for unrest over a controversial bill. We'll cross their live right after this break. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. President Trump has confirmed he will make an announcement by the end of the week about China's new national security law for Hong Kong. Amid reports, Washington will slap Beijing with sanctions over the move. Top White House adviser Larry Kudlow said the U.S. leader was, quote, miffed with China that the phase one trade deal signed in January was now not as important to him. Trump's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, echoed that sentiment in an interview with CNBC. Here we are, you know, a year on, and they're certainly not acting like a, like a leader amongst nations right now, hiding information. One of the reasons we are where we are as a world is because of what China didn't tell us about this disease in those critical first 30, 60 days. Um, so I think the president is angry about it. I think he's right to, to, to be so. And he's not the only one. You talk to world leaders all over the place, and they're starting to sort of reevaluate their relationship with China because it's sort of hard to have 
uh, are the same type of relationship you have with an open country that you do with a communist dictatorship. We've got some live shots now for you from Hong Kong, where we have been witnessing protests on the ground around the Legislative Council in Central and across in Causeway Bay and a number of uh, different uh, areas that the police are now having to try and fight fires. Uh, effectively, riot police uh, and the concentrating focus around the Legislative Council, where we are seeing uh, protests on the back of a bill to criminalise disrespect of the Chinese anthem. This is you've had soaring tensions across the territory and a rollback of freedom and rights on the back of a national security law that was being proposed by the Chinese. And uh, you can see on the ground currently, it does look like we've got uh, fairly calm conditions, but many people, as you can see, uh, got helmets, uh, people try to film what's taking place on the ground. All this on the back of what has been an extraordinary period of time with COVID-19, as Hong Kong's also been dealing with that crisis. Now it's gone right back to where it started before the pandemic, as you've seen heightened protests uh, return to the territory. My heavy security has so far kept protesters outside Hong Kong's Legislative Council at Bay as the body holds its second reading of the controversial anthem bill. This is what I was mentioning, which would uh, effectively criminalise disrespect of China's national anthem, carrying with it heavy fines. Let's go to Sherry for more. Sherry, we're just looking at those live shots. It does seem as though we're not uh, witnessing clashes at this point, but uh, clearly a heavy police presence. So we've been monitoring this, the situation uh, from the live feed that we're getting from the central business district of Hong Kong Island over the last uh, half an hour or so. So you're looking at the, quote, lunch, me, well, lunch with me protest in a central district. Uh, we did see uh, police officers trying to uh, basically contain the protesters gathering even further with pepper spray and so on. And we have to remember that social distancing measures are still very much in place. Sure, Hong Kong has been faring a lot better than many other uh, countries on that front and social distancing measures has been easing. But congregation of more than eight people are still a violation of the rules here. So keeping that in mind, we certainly saw protesters changing their tactic a little bit from if you want to compare today to June 12th of last year, because sure, the second reading, the legislative hearing process uh, of the national anthem bill is expected today, but we don't really see any protesters surrounding the legislative council building. That's because of tight security and heavier, heavier presence by police officers surrounding the building today. So that's why uh, they cannot really gather here to derail the process if that's what they wanted to. But they still are gathering in some of the major shopping districts or the business district to uh, chant uh, for calling for the freedom of Hong Kong. So that's really what we're seeing on the ground today. And of course, going back to the national anthem bill that is uh, being heard and debated today at the Hong Kong Legislative Council. It's really the idea of preserving the dignity of China's national anthem here in Hong Kong. And uh, we're talking about proposed penalty of 6,500 U.S. dollars and three years of imprisonment if there is any misuse or parodying of the national anthem of China. But of course, in the background, the bigger uh, uh, you know, talking point or the focal point, I should say, 
is China's push for national security law on Hong Kong. That was a sort of brought upon us by the NPC um, at the at the towards the end of last week. And we spoke to Joshua Wong, Secretary General of a pro-democracy group Demosisto, and of course is sort of this iconic figure of Hong Kong's pro-democracy activism. And this is what he had to say in terms of why uh, you know Beijing wants to push for this national security law. Take a listen. It's crystal clear that the National People Congress announced that the implementation and the execution of the national security law is without any public consultation in Hong Kong and also bypass the Hong Kong legislature. For example, the extradition bill on 2019 at least is still need to go through the first and second reading in the legislative council. Hong Kong lawmakers at least have a vote on the evil bill. But in 2020, Hong Kong lawmakers even can't have a say, can't even have a meeting or have a vote on the national security legislature right happening in Beijing. And remember, there are further steps to go through for the national security law to become the actual real law here in Hong Kong. And of course, we are seeing some of the local media reports suggesting that Beijing decided to sort of expand the scope of the national security law to include activities uh, rather than just acts that go against uh, this idea of national security. And of course, uh, they, you know, th- those local reports also suggest that this law might actually include organizations rather than just individuals. So a lot of question marks over those the details of the law. And of course, at this point, a lot of fear factor playing out in Hong Kong for pro-democracy demonstrators. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.